This is the non-microwave truth, and I am CL Chimp Life Whiteside. Some of y'all are really thinking, is that what CL stands for? Well, I told you a few episodes ago. I don't know which episode it was, but you have to just go back and listen to it. Listen to them all, I guess. We are in March, and I just want to check up on you real quick. Like, how are you doing with those New Year's resolutions? If you if you if you're doing a bad job and you suck at them, guess what? If you fail, get back up. If you fell off the bike, get back up on that bike and you can get back to those New Year's resolutions. Because don't wait until 2023 to be like, I'm going to do something else and I'm going to start. Because I don't even understand resolutions. It's like, if you know you need to change something, you don't wait for the day to change. You don't wait for the month, the week, the year to change. You do it right then and there. But hey, what do I know? I guess that's a little champ talk for you. March, though. March is Women's History Month. So what better place than to look in God's word, which is the greatest history book of mankind? And I got a question that a first world problem question that really deals with our culture today. And man, I got a lot of good responses with this. I asked a bunch of my students. They're the ages 16 to 18. And the question I asked them, and this is going to be geared towards Women's History Month, this episode or the next episode. This is actually going to be a two part First world problem. But the question I have for you today is, is it okay if a woman proposes to a man like a woman gets down on one knee and says, baby, will you marry me and be my husband? Like, What do you think about that? And I want you to think about this first. If you are a woman, would you ever consider dropping down on one knee to marry a man. If you're already married, just think about that. Would you do that with your husband? And then if you're a man, I want you to think about like, yeah, I would like if a woman proposed to me. Or would you be like, no. I asked a couple of my students and I told you like they're the age of 16 to 18. They were split down the middle about, about this. I had one girl who was like, heck he. I almost had to tell her like, don't cuss. She said, no, I absolutely wouldn't. Then I had some that like, yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. What do you think? And I have some more parts to this question. Do you think that it's biblically okay for a woman to propose to a man? Like, can a man be the head of the house if he allowed his woman, his wife to propose? Some of you are like, well, that's what women do anyways. They drop hints. Oh, trust me. I know about those hints. I remember my babe dropping those hints like, I think it would be really cool if we got like, if I was proposed to during Christmas, because Christmas is my favorite holiday. You know, I spun it though. Like, well, I don't know about that. You know, I got some stuff to pay off and well, I'm thinking about maybe doing it in the summer. Would you be, would you be okay with a, a, a winter or a Christmas themed wedding? That's not what I was saying. Hmm. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I just got to let y'all know. I spun it though. You, you know, I got the job done. I proposed around Christmas time, surprised her with the ring, plickety plow, pow, pow, wow. But yeah, a hint is not a proposal. Like it's not at all. And I've heard some people say that it's not biblical for a woman to propose because they look at it and they say, well, Jesus comes to his bride, which is the church and men are supposed to be like Jesus and go get their brides. So they justified and say a husband should love his wife as Christ loves the church, as Christ loves the church. And you can't do that if the woman is proposing. That's what some say. I'm not agreeing with that. I'm just throwing that out there. 
And we know that a husband is supposed to provide, protect, be willing to die, you know, nurture, lead, and give vision to the family. So when a woman proposes, is she then taking on the role of the man to lead and to provide and to even protect to death? Like, does this cause roles to be switched? But I got to think about this. Like, when did proposals even start? Because when you look at in the Bible, it talks a lot about arranged marriages. It talks about even somebody working seven years to get someone's hand in marriage. But we don't see a lot of proposals, especially like we see in our American culture. And I know another passage that people justify or use to say that a woman should not propose is Proverbs 18, verse 22. And that passage says this, he who finds a wife, he who finds a wife, not he who finds a husband, but he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And they look at this and it's like it's saying a man is supposed to find or look for a wife. But is this saying a man has to propose? I don't know. I think that's taking it too far to say that. I don't think you can. And I don't think there is a clear cut, concise, perfect answer or passage that a person can point to and say, yep, this is the way it should be. A woman should never, ever, ever propose to a man. I think this is a culture thing. I think this is a culture thing, but I would love to hear from you. This is our first world problem. The first question is, is it okay for a woman to propose to a man? Would you do it? I, that's what I would like to know. Would you like, would you do it or think it's okay? And do you have any biblical proof on your answer? I don't think there's enough biblical proof to say yes or no to this, but I would love to hear from you, Instagram or Twitter. Again, my handle is championlife23, and this is our first world problem. It is dinner time. The title of our episode today is Women's Impact in the Bible. This is a two part series. This is the first part of that series. And before we get started, with it being Nationals Women, Women's Month, I just want to give a shout out to a few women. Shout out to Nia and Mandy, who helped make this podcast work, who review it, who make it right. Make sure I don't say anything stupid on here. Uh, thank you. Shout out to them. And of course, I got to give a shout out to my beautiful wife who is helping make a beautiful history with me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I want to point out, I have a lot of good female friends in my life. I would say I've had a good amount of platonic relationships in my life, and I would like to name each and every one of them. But I could get in big trouble if I miss someone. And I don't want to do that. But. Thank you to all the different female friends I've had in my life who have helped me grow and impacted me in a positive way and make great history. Let's get into it today. The title of this again is Women's Impact in the Bible. And with this being Women's History Month, there is no greater book to look at than the Bible. And how did the Bible view women? How did women impact the world that we live in, especially from a biblical sense? from a today's gospel standpoint. And I know that the Bible doesn't necessarily, or Christianity doesn't get the best rap for women's roles or women's impact in society or what they meant in that given culture. But I just want to make note that there are a lot of microwave truths. I'll say that again, microwave truths, not the non-microwave truths, but there are a lot of microwave truths when it comes to women and their impact or their role given in the Bible. 
For example, a microwave truth is if you are a woman, you got to shut up and submit. Or another microwave truth is the Bible is sexist. Why didn't Jesus have any female disciples? And I have counters to that like right away. Big, big time counters. The first counter is God is a God of order. So a lot of times when people take that submissive or submissive point or passage, it's taken out of context because God is a God of order. And there are times when men need to shut up, too. But that was specifically getting at an order, not a all the time. Shut up, woman type of thing. Not at all. Not at all. And men and women are different. I know some of you are like, well, duh. But sometimes I think people forget that. Men and women are different. As much as I would like, and it's, it's, no matter how hard I try, I wouldn't be able to have a baby. Ooh, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? And if you're like, is that the only thing you can name? I mean, no, there are more things I can name. But we get so caught up in titles and roles, and that's because sin has jacked up everything. So the value system, we're always trying to make it what we do as more valuable than the next person, especially with this gender thing. That's one of the things that our culture does. One of the things that the devil would like us to do. Who's more important, a man or a woman? I mean, last time I checked, if you didn't have any women, you wouldn't have any men. And if you didn't have any men, you wouldn't have any women. I mean, yeah. But enough of that already. On this episode of Women's Impact in the Bible, I want to look at Esther. This is one of two books in the Bible named after women. And I know we can get caught up on some points. And the devil is like, see, he doesn't care about women or he'd have more books in the Bible named after them. Like, that's a potent lie. You know why it's a potent lie? Because it tells half the truth. Half the truth that, yes, there are only two books in the Bible named after women, but the other half is a lie that he doesn't care about women. I highly suggest you read it. It is a, a great book to read. I think it's a pretty easy read. And I'm going to summarize the entire book of Esther and try to highlight some key moments. But like I said, I would encourage you to read this book for yourself because there will be some things that I miss or just don't cover. Now, I want to look at Esther. Esther was a woman who lost her parents and was raised by her cousin named Mordecai. Now, this is not, I'm not making this up, but it, it says in the Bible that Esther had a banging body. It says something like she had a lovely figure. And in my mind, that means she's slim thick. And if you're like, what's well, slim thick? That means she has it in the right places. And she was beautiful. I didn't make this up. It says this in the good book. Go read it. Now, the person who's in charge is a dude named King Xerxes. He's the one whose kingdom is the one reigning and stretching throughout the places that Esther and Mordecai live. He decided to have 180 days of showing off his wealth and seven days of feasting so and drinking. So I picture like Mardi Gras or I picture like an open bar wedding banquet that lasted seven days. On the seventh day, it says when he was high in spirits, I interpret that as he had like a great buzz. He asked his officials to get his wife, which is Queen Vashti, to come. Because he wanted to show her off because she had to be fine like wine. But guess what she did? She refused to come. So he felt big time disrespected. So he gets together with his boys and royal officials and he asks, what is he supposed to do to her? And they're like, man, all women will be disrespectful to their husbands if this gets out. If, if they find out what the queen did to you, they're going to end up doing this to their husbands. So we got to get this in check. So she's got to go. 
So she was never to enter the presence again. And they're like, let's find a new queen. So they send this out to everybody in the kingdom. So all the women know. And I kid you not, this this seems to me like the first reality TV show of The Bachelor. It sounds just like The Bachelor. The king's personal attendants propose, let's do a search for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Basically, they said, let's go find all the baddies in the kingdom, get them together and replace Queen Vashti. This is chapter two of Esther, if you want to read it. And the king is like, I like this idea. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But long story short, Esther gets picked. She won his favor. Interesting. Interesting is she never revealed her nationality or family background because her cousin Mordecai told her not to. So the king is like, she's so fine. I got to make her all mine. She won the bachelor. I think that would be the bachelor. Yeah, because the bachelor is the one where all the women come for the man. King Xerxes is head over heels for Esther. It says that he set a crown on her head and he makes her queen instead of Vashti, throws her a party, and he makes it a holiday. And it's so many dope qualities about Esther, not just looks, which I know women can get annoyed by because looks matter a lot to men. But there's so much more than looks. Esther has high character and Esther has humility. This sounds like my wife. She has something that can be admired by not only just women, but definitely men as well. She shows that God values women and she is Christ-like. And on this episode of Women's Impact in the Bible, we're definitely going to look at some of those character traits that Esther shows throughout her life. Now, her cousin Mordecai, he finds out about an assassination plan of her husband, King Xerxes. And he tells Esther. And what does she do? She tells the king, but this is what I'm talking about with humility. She gives the credit to, to Mordecai. And she's just about the truth getting told and, and making sure that the king is safe. So she ends up telling the king, her husband, about these men. And the bad guys end up getting killed. And they keep it moving. This is like the end of chapter two, if you want to read it. But fast forward this. King Xerxes ends up putting like this lame dude in charge or in like a high power position. And his name is Haman. Now, Haman is on a power kick. He wants everyone to bow down and honor him. And he ends up running into her cousin, Mordecai, who happens to be at the king's gate a lot of times. And where people, well, they'll, they'll kneel down and they'll bow down to him and honor him. And Mordecai's like, I'm not doing that. Like, you're not God. I'm not, I'm not doing that. So people see this and people tell Haman about it. And Haman finds out he's a Jew. And Haman is like, you know what? I'm going to end up killing this man. But I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill all of his people. I'm going to kill every single Jew now. So Haman spins it and he tells King Xerxes, like, hey, you know, it's a group of people that's, that they, they tripping. They're keeping themselves separate. They don't obey you. So we should wipe them out. And Xerxes is like, all right, say no more. You, you can do it. Make the decree, make the law happen. So they wrote out everything Haman said, and it was signed off by King Xerxes. They picked a day, which was the 13th day of the 12th month, and they spread the word about this. Now, Mordecai ends up hearing about this, and he is distraught. He ends up fasting. He ends up weeping. He ends up warning. And this is the same thing that the other Jews did when they found out that their entire nationality, their entire race was supposed to be or planned to be wiped out. 
And when they got the news, it says many laid in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this would be chapter four. Now, Mordecai gets word to Esther that she needs to go to the king, beg for mercy and plead for him, for her people. Now, Esther is in the middle and is like she, she understands whoever approaches the king without being actually summoned or like called on could be put to death unless he extends like this gold scepter and spares him. Now, a gold scepter, I picture that that's like a, a gold king cane. So Esther definitely has some concerns and Esther's concerns, they get back to Mordecai and Mordecai responds like, don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. And when I heard that, that made me think he was saying, don't think that you're safe. You are still a Jew and this decree, this decree is for every Jew. And it was like he was guaranteeing if you don't do something, you will die. So there's no saving yourself. But then he does something. He points out something very cool. And he says, maybe you came into this royal position for this very moment and for this very situation. Esther replies to this and says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And I found this very interesting that they fasted. Like personal experience with fasting is, you know, when I did fast, time did seem to slow down. I definitely found more prayer time. I think it definitely helps refocus and put first things first. And on this episode of women's impact in the Bible, we have to look at Esther's approach to King Xerxes because it's so tactful. So Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and he held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now I'm summarizing again. Xerxes asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So he sees her and he likes, I'm so happy to see my baby. What you want, girl? If you want, you can have half this kingdom. That's how much I love you. That's how much I'm down for you. That's how much I rock with you. Do you know how many of us would have lost focus if we got offered half of the United States or offered something that's worth a billion dollars? We'd be like, what? Uh, forget about this. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get this money. I'm going to go ahead and get this, this stuff. But this is where we see Esther's discipline and her focus and her humility and her ability to, to stick to the plan. Esther says to him, how about you and Haman? Haman's that dude, he made his right hand man. She says, how about you and Haman come to a banquet today I have prepared? Haman's the one who wants to kill all the Jews. So they end up going. They have a great time. And Xerxes is like, what's your request, my dear? Remember, you can have half the kingdom if you want it. And I'm just thinking, if I was in Esther's position, I low-key would be thinking, I could get 50% of everything, and you know what? I think I could keep my life, even if my people die, and he wouldn't kill me. But she wasn't enamored by stuff. Esther says, you know what? Come to another banquet for you two tomorrow, and I'll ask you what I need to ask. Now, what's funny is, Haman, on his way home, he sees Mordecai again, and he gets ticked off. I bet he was thinking, like, man, I can't wait to kill, dude. I'm about, oh, I'm about to, about to get his head chopped off messing with me. But that same night, 
Xerxes, he can't sleep. And when he can't sleep, he has someone read to him some chronicles, which is like detailing his reign. And, and guess who gets brought up when this reading happens? Mordecai gets brought up. And the king is like, did we ever honor that, that guy who um, saved me from getting assassinated? And the official was like, nope, we did not. So what does King Xerxes do? He ends up getting a hold of Haman and he has Haman come in and says, hey, what would you do or how would you honor someone if they did this, this and this? He pretty much describes what Mordecai did. And Haman is like, oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm about to get another promotion. I'm about to. So Haman is like, this is what I would do. I would honor him in this way. I would honor him in that way. And in Haman's mind, Haman is like, this is I'm setting up the perfect gift for myself. Like, this is awesome. You know how you you ask somebody like, hey, what would be the perfect gift for you? Because you really want to get it for him. So that's what Haman thought. But. His thought got caught. He was wrong. He was talking about Mordecai. Mordecai, the guy he hates. Ha. So fast forward a little bit. King Xerxes and Haman, they end up going to Queen Esther's banquet. And while they're chilling, they're drinking wine. This is the second day. The king says, you know, Esther, what, what is it that you want? Whatever you want, it will be given to you. What's your request? Remember, you can get up to half the kingdom. And I promise, babe, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. I'm paraphrasing chapter seven, too, just in case you're wondering, like, where is this at in the Bible? But Esther asks, she says, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. And then the king is like, well, who is after your people? Like, who is he? Where, where is he at? Who is the man who would ever do such a thing? And Esther's like. It's Haman. She calls him an adversary and an enemy. Now, Haman, Haman is terrified and the king gets up and he's heated. Like he left his wine. He went out into the palace garden and he's just like, OK, I picture him pacing. Now, Haman, he realizes that the king has already decided his fate. Like, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. So he stays behind and he starts to beg Queen Esther for his life. And this is not biblical, but this is what I picture in my head. I picture like a little kid grabbing one of his parents' legs and like, no, don't do it. Don't give me a whooping. Don't do it. And it says, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king is like, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? You know he's dead. He ended up getting put on a pole that he had set up for Mordecai to die on. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And just look at all the twists and turns with this. But really look at the, the impact that Esther was able to make. God used Esther to not just save herself or save her cousin, but to save all of the Jews. Esther's courage was off the charts. Her selflessness is amazing because she took a risk. She took a risk in asking because she could have died. Like the easy and selfish thing to do would have been just, I'm going to be quiet. And you know what? He's probably not even going to realize that I'm a Jew. And if all of them die, oh, well, I'm still good. But no, she sacrificed. She sacrificed everything. And what makes sacrifice so tough and courage so tough is when you have a lot you all of a sudden have a lot to lose. And Esther had a whole lot to lose. She not only had her life to lose, but then she had all the perks of being in the palace, all the perks of being the queen. 
And she put that on the line for her people. She put that on the line for what was actually right. Everyone wants to make an impact, but not everyone wants to put their life on the line. Can I get an amen to that? And something I do want to point out on this episode of Women's Impact in the Bible, if and when we look at a lot of cultures and societies in the Bible, they did treat women as like a non-person. And they treated women in a way like it was something that men could possess. Like, why could men have a thousand wives? Well, I'll tell you this. It was wrong. A hundred percent wrong. And some people are like, well, it never said it was a sin. Just look at all of the bad things that happened to Solomon from having all these different women or King David. It, it didn't work. But the point that I really want to make is that Jesus didn't do this and, and the Bible didn't do this. When you look at Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, which is in John chapter four, you can see how God used that woman to bless the entire Samaritan community. And that shows that even though man might try to limit or restrain someone or somebody, God is not the same. And I want you just to think about this. Who in the Bible does Jesus commend or praise for having great faith? Not one of the 12 disciples. I only found two people. And yes, of course, one of them was a woman. It was the Canaanite woman who talk, who was talked about in Matthew 15, verse 21 to 28. In the NIV version of the Bible, it's even called the faith of a Canaanite woman. And the last question that I want to leave you with on this episode of Women's Impact in the Bible is this. Who did Jesus and the Bible have be one of the first witnesses of the greatest action done in mankind? Which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mary Magdalene and some other women. Women's impact in the Bible is real. God didn't just use men for spreading the gospel for the world. He used women. He elevated women when the world wanted to suppress them. He showed love to women when they were told they were unworthy of love. And this is the non-microwave truth. This is the first episode of our two-part series of Women's Impact in the Bible. We're just getting started, so you got to come check out the next episode next week. But if you liked it or love it, hit the five-star, leave a review, or share it with a friend. Peace punch, Captain Crunch. Say no to drugs and yes to Jesus. I'm out.